One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. Okay, uh, welcome back to episode five of the Pre-Hospital Podcast. Um, thanks for coming back. Um, today I'm speaking to consultant midwife um, Dawn Kerslake, um, who is fairly new um, to my trust and so- someone I work with quite regularly now. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming on, Dawn. Um, can you give us a bit of an introduction about, an in- introduction about yourself, please? Yeah, of course I can. Thank you for inviting me. So I have been working for uh, the ambulance service now for 18 months and prior to that, I had worked in hospitals throughout my career. I had started life as a nurse and became an ED nurse and then very quickly changed into training to be a midwife. So collectively, I think nursing and midwifery I've been doing for 28 years now. And when this job came up 18 months ago, it looked extremely interesting. And uh, I was aware that there was only other one, cons- one other consultant midwife in the country So I had a long chat with her and actually this ticked every box for me. It was emergency care, it was midwifery and it was just completely different and new and something I really wanted to to come away and and learn about. So I'm still on that learning curve, if you like. Uh, 18 months in, I still don't know all your three letter acronyms, (laughs) but I'm working towards. And I was really lucky because when I joined, I was asked um, to train up the critical care paramedics first as a cohort of individuals that would become maternity champions for me. And that's exactly what's happened. And I've been really lucky and blessed that I've had their support. And uh, they've been really enthusiastic about learning about maternity, which I now know is something that most people are within the ambulance service are quite fearful of, uh, which I hadn't really been completely aware of prior to joining the ambulance service. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Um, it does seem to be kind of ubiquitous that that fear of maternity jobs, or I don't I don't know if it's just our, our lack of exposure to it, or the fact that the patient, the the kind of patients involved are, are so different from our normal patients. Um, 
but yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, I didn't realise the consultant midwifery jobs were so rare. Yeah, they are. So um, I think our medical director worked in another ambulance service. Well, I don't think I know. She worked in another ambulance service before she worked with us. And uh, she brought in the first consultant midwife. And uh, then when she came to us, she decided that uh, we needed one as well, much to my uh, delight. But it's it's interesting, going back to that previous point about why uh, our colleagues in green don't like maternity. And I think I had this summed up beautifully by one of the helicopter doctors, and he said to me, uh, oh, it's really easy. I'll tell you why we don't like it. He said, when we go to any other job, he said, it's already happened. Uh, whatever it is that's gone down has happened. And when we arrive, we can only add benefit and hopefully fix them. He said, whereas when we go to your women, uh, not sure why they're my women, but anyway, I suddenly own them. When we go to your women, um, he said, our action or worse, our inaction can make it catastrophically worse. And that really summed it up well for me. And that was the first moment, I think, where I had that what we class as a light bulb moment. And I thought, okay, that makes perfect sense now. I get it. You know, I don't like watching on television on casualty or any of those other medical programs. Well, A, I don't like watching them. And B, I don't like anticipating what's going to happen because obviously they build the story and you can see what's about to happen and I don't like seeing bad things happen to people um I'm fine to arrive afterwards and pick up the pieces and sort it out but you know like this doctor suggested I'm not very keen on watching it unfold so I do understand it way better now yeah I think that's a fair point actually and so I've found um like you say because of your involvement in our program um I've been going to more maternity cases as part of my normal work and it is a weird position to be in to um, be waiting for something to happen and not knowing whether you're uh, facilitating a nice experience for a family or getting involved in some critical care interventions in the next five, ten minutes. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's hard. I guess with other jobs, we kind of drive there planning what you're going to do and getting in the right headspace. And yeah, you're kind of in a bit of a... Um, an in-between space <laughs> yeah complete unknown and and you know, it can go from euphoric to catastrophic quite quickly can't it um and and i think ultimately nobody expects a bad outcome from a birth certainly not in today's age you know yeah. years ago possibly um but nowadays people expect to come in and they expect to leave with a live baby and, and a mother um you know and that's not unreasonable is it so uh when it goes wrong it's it's something that people haven't even considered that may happen yeah, no, it's a fair point. And um, yeah, so hopefully, so again, thanks for coming on and hopefully we can discuss some things which will make um, our colleagues in green and certainly myself feel a bit more comfortable with these kind of cases. Yeah, um, thanks Yeah, so I wanted to, I know we've kind of briefly discussed what we're going to talk about, um, but just for the listeners, I I wanted to discuss some, some um, kind of points that maybe aren't too often discussed um, when we're talking about maternity care. And so for that reason, um, we won't talk too much about um, the uh, quote-unquote common emergencies in, in maternity care. So things like um, anti- and postpartum hemorrhage, cord prolapse, shoulder dystocia, um, breach and eclamptic seizures, uh, kind of preeclampsia type conditions. Um, we might refer to, but I'll, I'll signpost people to, to kind of learning points for that in, in the notes, um, which will give us some time to talk about some other aspects that I think people would um, benefit from if that's all right. Yeah, of course. Um, so to start with, um, I thought it'd be useful um, to talk about a normal delivery because we know that, I don't know the exact statistics, but maybe 90% of births in the community um, that we attend as an ambulance service are often are, are uncomplicated. 
And in these cases, like we kind of mentioned, it's more of our role to facilitate a positive experience for the service users. Um, and that being said, um, they're relatively infrequent cases for ambulance st staff despite that. Um, and it's easy, I know firsthand, to feel overwhelmed by those cases. Um, so I wonder, in, to that end, could you kind of talk us through what is a, a normal birth and how we can best facilitate that? Um, things like what equipment do we need, what's useful to know the notes, um, you know, how to encourage mum and basically how to make that a positive experience without looking like we're completely out of our depth. Okay, of course I can. Yeah, I'd <laughs> love to. So um, first of all, I think it's higher than 90% Silas. I think it's like 95 to 98% are going to be normal. So I think that's really important to say. That's much more positive we, than me. <laughs> yeah, we always focus, don't we, on the things that may, may go wrong. And I really want to emphasise that those awful skills that I have to teach you when we do have to manage difficult situations are really few and far between. So I guess when you're going into this imminent delivery, which is what we call one of our, uh, our, our mothers that's delivering a baby, uh, when you go into one of these jobs is to keep that in your mind because I think we always fear the 2% and I don't want you to do that. I want you to go in and be part of a really wonderful experience for that family and even though you don't perhaps feel like that's what you're going to do, put on your best poker face yeah. <laughs> and you may well be doing that swan thing of paddling very, very fast under the water whilst trying to display a, a modicum of calm above but that's really key. And I think that's what our colleagues in green do really, really well. So that's great. I don't need to teach you that. You know how to do it. And I think when you're going into this home, the first and single most important thing is building up a rapport with that woman quickly. And again, that's something that the ambulance service have, uh, have nailed, really, if you like. We are really good at going into a situation with complete strangers and allowing them to be part of something either very traumatic or, in my, in my situation, very intimate. Um, so getting the woman on side is key. That's the single most important thing you do first and foremost. And, of course, her partner, because this is incredibly stressful for partners. You know, never did they anticipate in a million years that they would be calling us. They expected they would go to hospital if that's where they chose to birth and that everything would be controlled and um, they would just be taking a you know a spectator position so if they are there and they are in the throes of perhaps trying to help their partner to birth a baby that's incredibly stressful so now you've got two patients you've got a partner who needs to be calmed and reassured and you've got a woman um, who is potentially very stressed um, I think women are incredible. I think they get on with it and they manage it probably better than the partners. I think they just uh, go into themselves in a, in a, in a weird way. And I, I actually remember doing that in one of my own deliveries, just sort of having this outer body experience where I was looking down on myself, thinking, God, that poor woman down there is having a terrible time. And then I, the realisation that it was me. So, um, so I do understand that. So trying to be with the woman and reassuring her and calming her down while simultaneously opening a maternity pack, getting your equipment ready and potentially setting up a newborn recess area because I'm of the frame of mind, as I'm sure you are, Silas, that if you are prepared, you won't need it. Um, if you don't have that paediatric bag out, you can bet your life you're going to need it. So I like to get everything out and everything ready. And I think when you first go in, it might be quite salient to take your Entonox and to give that to mum and to train her in how to use it, because that will calm her straight away. 
And um, whilst you're training her in how to use the Entonox, you can be popping a hand on her shoulder and reassuring her. And it's that kindness that women want. They don't want people that are extremely skilled. They want someone to come in with an, a massive dose of common sense who's really nice to them. I mean, they'd like us to have some sort of training, obviously. <laughs> but in the, in the main, they want you to be nice to them and reassure them that they're brilliant, which they are. So, so that's my first tip. And then if we progress nice and normally and mum starts to get an urge to push, and certainly when I do my training, you'll remember, we talk a little bit about the first stage of labour when the mum's having the contractions uh, and the difference between what that's like compared to when she hits the second stage of labour and she starts to get that urge to push. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And, and it's really different, isn't it? So the contractions, uh, they come and they go. And in between the contractions, she's a completely normal functioning human. And I think I learned quite quickly in my midwifery career that you don't talk to a woman during a contraction because uh, if you want to upset her, do that. <laughs> because she can't talk back and she'd just become immensely frustrated. So I now time all my conversations when she's not having a contraction. Or I will say... Um, I'm going to talk to you about such and such. I don't expect you to respond. That's absolutely fine. And when that contraction's gone away, you can give me your answer just to give her yeah. that permission to not give me any eye contact and to carry on doing what she's doing. And after each contraction, you're going to say, well done. And that's one step closer. And we're nearly there and you've nailed it. You've got this. All those reassuring things that you can say to women. And then I think once you get to the point of what we call transition, when she's transitioning from the first to the second stage of labour, that's when um, women can become really quite stressed. And that's when you sometimes see, and it's portrayed on television appallingly, uh, women become like monsters, <laughs> the most unreasonable human that ever hit the planet that you can't possibly have any conversation with. Um, not necessarily true. Uh, most women, as I say, in between contractions are normally functioning human beings. So um, when you see a woman's behaviour change and she becomes somebody that's been contracting fairly regularly but has you know is managing her pain and is relatively calm although distressed obviously to suddenly get this urge to push it's that guttural urge and these poor women you can't control it again television portrays that the waters break and the woman has a baby or that um, you can tell a woman to stop pushing those of us in the know know that none of those things ever happen the waters can break 24 hours before you have a baby and you can uh, get an urge to push. And to be honest with you, it's really difficult to, to not push. Yeah. So we are in the know in that respect. So I think reassuring her through the first stage and probably by the time we've been called, she's at the pushing stage. Because I think most people, when they're in the first stage, will try and get in a car and make their way to hospital you know by hook or by crook um so generally speaking we're walking in at the worst possible moment she's already pushing and it's entirely possible that she will have waited for your arrival before she pushes now i do believe women have some degree of control in this respect and you quite often see it when women arrive in maternity units or we arrive at their homes that all of a sudden there's that sudden relaxation in that woman and she just gives this almighty push and the baby comes out and i firmly believe that's because help has arrived or she's arrived at help depending on where this happens yeah, and that yeah, women yeah. then birth in the safe knowledge that we are present to help them and it doesn't actually matter if you have no experience of birth at that point because if the baby comes out and screams which it will in 98 percent of cases <laughs> um you know you just need to be lovely 
and you just need to tell her what an awesome human she is. So does that answer your question, Silas, in terms of how you need to behave? I hope it does. Um, yeah. Our maternity yeah. our maternity packs are equipped, or they're about to be equipped in our trust, um, with everything you need. Up until now, we haven't had everything we need. So, for instance, we never had a nappy. Who knew? Um, and I don't understand how you've managed without a nappy. But anyway, there we go. So you're about to get a nappy in your pack. Uh, you're about to get a little, little waste bag. It's the small things that matter. Um, and so really, you only need um, a couple of cord clamps and a pair of cord scissors, and you don't really need that. You could leave mum attached um, to baby for, for a period of time. Um, I think the key the key thing is to keep that baby warm. So straight on to mum, cover them both up, keep them warm. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? To, to yeah, I, I guess to remember the statistic that overwhelmingly, it's overwhelmingly likely that it's going to be a positive experience. And then to have Absolutely. a bit of um, kind of oversight and you can prepare a um, resuscitation area without it looking like a adult resuscitation area, I guess. Um, yep. Towels and as long as, I guess, as long as you know where your kit is in the bag, having the bag there and the towels and everything pre- prepared um, doesn't have to look um, foreboding for the mum, I suppose. Um, no, and also don't forget, she's in the thick of it. She's really not going to have to <laughs> No, she's not going to care. That's definitely true. Um, but she's probably not going to see because if you've managed to get your NLS area set up on a chest of drawers or a table, which is what I generally recommend off the floor where it's cold, um, then she's not going to see because she's probably on the floor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So trying to keep everything normal and calm is is key. We don't want it to be medical. She doesn't want a medicalised delivery. She doesn't want to see a load of kit and uh, 20 colleagues come marching in. And I think that might be another point, actually. If, you know, another five crews turn up, this isn't a spectator sport. Um, you can stand them down. You can suggest, I mean, five crews would be a luxury, wouldn't it? <laughs> that, that would be the case. But, um, you know, if, if several people are sta- stood there standing, staring at her, then I would probably suggest that they move to another room or perhaps pop outside just to try and make it as private and dignified as you possibly can. Yeah. And in terms of, um, you mentioned like medicalizing the process. Um, there's a few kind of practices that we um, certainly see in on placements and stuff, and there's some questions over. Um, one of them is cannulation, um, and it's not uncommon for us to see, you know, on maternity placements, grey cannulas being thrown in here and there. Um, yeah. And obviously, you appreciate the need for that in, in patients that are at risk of bleeding and stuff. Um, but how, you know, wh- when do you make the decision to do that? Because you don't want to, like you say, unnecessarily medicalise a process that doesn't need to have that done. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to be trying to get large bore access in someone that's got a depleted volume. No, and that's absolutely, um, oh, it, it's, a, it's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because I want that woman to have a normal birth experience. So I'm not going to cannulate her. Um, if at the point that she starts to bleed, then I'm going to get it in quite quickly because you and I both know that these women shut down very quickly because they bleed out fast. So I'm not going to hang around. But equally, you know, we've talked about percentages today we've talked about the fact that 98 percent of women are going to deliver without a hemorrhage so are we going to cannulate everybody in case and i would suggest not actually i would suggest trying to keep this as normal as possible and get that cannula have it ready by all means it's it's in our bags isn't it we've got it um have it on the side if you feel more reassured to do that but I'm certainly not an advocate of cannulating every woman who's pregnant and having a baby. I think that's pretty rotten. And if somebody tried to uh, cannulate me, I think I would say no. <laughs> and you don't want to argue with a birthing mum. 
No, you really don't. No, they're <laughs> the most unreasonable humans, as we've discussed already. <laughs> no um, means no and all that. I guess it, it leads me on to another question around what could be a complication. Um, and that's another kind of unanswered one for me is, is when babies present with a cord around their neck. Um, I've heard differing things about what we are to do as ambulance clinicians. Um, is that something we should try and address or, or not? Yeah, let's let's talk about it now. So um, back in the day, certainly when I started my midwifery training, if the baby was born, as the head came out, it was your next job to check and see if the cord was around the neck. And if it was, you looped it over the head. Well, we don't do that anymore. That's sort of old fashioned practice. Now what we do is we just let mum push through because actually the cord is generally a decent length and will just unravel as that baby pushes. So you need to do nothing. Now that said, if you are going to get mum to push through with the next contraction and then you note that that is tightly around the neck, maybe twice, um, and, and the baby isn't advancing and it's not coming, then, yeah, you might want to slip it over the head. But I certainly wouldn't do it as a first first manoeuvre mm. post head delivering. I would leave it and get her to push first. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Um, so good stuff so that's the next question is then hopefully we've we've dealt with this nice normal delivery and we have a happy crying baby um one of the questions that was posed on twitter and um, when i mentioned we're going to have this discussion um yeah. was from luke and he was asking if you could talk us through a, a kind of pertinent comprehensive assessment of the newborn um, and i guess with that how to just check the placenta to make sure that's intact yeah, sure. So this is something midwives are obsessed about. So we'll start with the placenta. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the reason we're obsessed about it is not because we're completely crazy humans. It's because we want to make sure it's complete, because if it's not complete, um, it was very, it's very likely to be uh, still inside the mother. And if you have still got retained products inside the mother, then obviously the uterus, well, not obviously, actually, the uterus won't contract. It recognises there's a foreign body left behind. And that leaves you uh, predisposed to hemorrhage. <clears throat> if the uterus doesn't contract down, then um, all those blood vessels are not tied off correctly and you can be uh, susceptible to hemorrhage. So um, that's why we're obsessed with it. And also because obviously if there's a little chunk left behind, if it's in the uh, you know birth canal, then or maybe just inside the cervix or set up somewhere, then that will slowly rot because it is a bit of rotten flesh. Ultimately, it's a waste product and the mother will end up with severe sepsis. So that's why we like to check them. Now, we always check the cord to make sure there's three vessels. We check the membranes to make sure there's two layers. Uh, for those of you that are interested, you've got the chorion and the omnion. Um, amnion, sorry. Uh, and then you've got the big fleshy bit that's been attached, the actual placenta, the sort of the livery bit, if you like, uh, that's been attached to the inside of the woman's uterus. And that's the bit that we're really careful at examining to make sure no little lobes have come away and have been left behind. Um, but in terms of us pre-hospitally, I always say to crews to put it in a bag, which you're going to have in your new packs. Um, bring it in and why don't we ask why don't we as um, pre-hospital clinicians when we get to hospital with this woman and we popped her onto the room and made her comfortable and handed her over why don't we say to the midwife can you just show me can I check it with you can you ex can we examine it together um, we don't do that enough we need to start asking those questions and I think uh, our colleagues often feel like they have to hand over and go but don't you know the same applies if you bring a woman in to hospital into a labour ward and you've been with her for an hour or 40 minutes or however long and she then starts to push 
I'm probably going to suggest that you stay because she's already built up a beautiful rapport with you, hopefully. Um, and, uh, you know, she's known you for that hour. Did she really want care to be handed over to another healthcare professional? I would suggest not. So if you've been with that woman and you have feel like you've built up a reasonable rapport with her and when you get into hospital, she's delivering, ask. Midwives won't consider or think for a minute that you will want to stay, but do ask. Ask the question. Say, can I stay? Can I can I help with the delivery? And most of them will be absolutely fine. I'd like to say all of them. I'm sure they would. Uh, will be absolutely fine for you to do that. So, uh, yeah, just as an aside there, Silas. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a good point because I, I, I attended a case recently, the, the first one I've been to for a while, and again, I, I just didn't remember how to, to check a placenta. I'd not done it for a few years. So I did actually do that. Um, the baby was delivered and, and everything was fine. So I spoke to the midwives afterwards and they're really accommodating, showed me how to do it, reminded me kind of um, the process and stuff. And yeah, like they you say, we're, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it is a really useful thing to do, I think. Yeah. And then as far as the baby's concerned, um, I would have a very quick look. I mean, I always do what I call a top to toe and I have a very quick look from the head to the bottom, generally before I hand the baby straight over onto the parents, because there are babies born with abnormalities that parents perhaps weren't aware of. And it's really important that we give that baby that very quick cursory glance to make sure um, that everything's as it needs to be. It's got five fingers and uh, ten altogether, but five on each hand, obviously, um, and, and, all, and all of its toes etc they'll often ask about uh what it is now as in sex so i often say just before delivery would you like me to tell you or would you like to discover for yourselves and i personally don't think it's my news to deliver so i will always try and lift baby up in the air and hold baby up a bit like simba um and and say to parents look what have you got and i'll always try and remove the cord because that can be a difficult situation when dad says it's a boy and it's not um, so I just try to pull the cord to one side and say, what have you got? And collectively let them, you know, look and see what, what baby they've just had. Um, and then I'll have that very quick cursory glance and pop baby straight onto to mum's tum. And then they will both very quickly examine that baby. It's really bizarre, actually. I never realised until I was a midwife how very quickly parents give that baby their own top to toe. And they want to look to make sure everything's where it needs to be. So if you've missed something, don't worry, it'll be picked up very quickly. Yeah, I think one from my experience is to whether you tell them the sex or not is to make sure you know it for your documentation um, as well as the time of delivery, because that's embarrassing to try and um, work that out after the fact. (laughs) And it it leads me on to a question that I know we've discussed before um, about delivery of twins. And you've told me off for suggesting we write one and two on their forehead with Sharpie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's a it's a real kind of issue, I guess, isn't it? How how what are your tips for um differentiating them? Okay, so um, do you know what? That's a really nice question and a really good one to answer. So you've got four cord clamps in your pack. I would suggest when twin one comes out, you're obviously going to uh, clamp and cut the cord, and um, you're going to have one cord clamp on twin one. When twin two comes out, stick an extra cord clamp on it. Because when you come into labour ward and I say to you, oh, lovely Silas, wonderful, well done. Um, Which one's twin one and which one's twin two? I mean, you'll have written on their heads, so it's sort of (laughs) an unnecessary question. But um, you'll go, oh, God, I don't know. So if you've just stuck a second cord clamp on twin two, you can just you can just tick that box, shall we say. So, yeah, there's my top tip for twins. Yeah, easier than trying to keep track of them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And parents do like to know which one came first. Yeah. 
Cool, thanks for that. Um, it kind of leads me on, I guess, to obviously we're going to talk about some complications, but is there is there any kind of indications during that birthing process um, that the situation is about to become worse or that complications are going to occur? What are the kind of things you're looking out for um, to make you think that we might need to provide some intervention? Okay, so it rather depends in every delivery. So I often talk about breach delivery. Uh, we'll start with breach. So breach babies generally deliver quite quickly. And they make progress with every single contraction. So if a breech baby is not doing that and the baby's not moving or it's not a blue in colour, then I've got concerns um, because they're pretty clever breech babies. They wriggle their way out and they sort of do little tummy crunches and they get themselves out. So that, that, that would be a red flag for me, not seeing that. Uh, shoulder dystocia babies. So you hear of this term called turtlenecking, and some of you may be familiar with this. And that is that the head will come out and because it's sort of hyperextended because the shoulders are stuck up behind the uh, symphysis pubis, it sort of overstretches its neck um, and then it sort of vacuums back onto the perineum because it's uncomfortable because its shoulders have been left behind. Um, so you often see that and, and midwives will also come out of a room sometimes on a labour ward and say, Dawn, do you know what? Um, this head is really slow to come up. And that means the head is very slow to deliver. And I'm just a little bit worried. Um, so would you just be on, on listen out for the bell? So um, midwives have this sometimes intuition that something might be about to happen. I'm trying to think what other emergencies you can anticipate. That's the difficulty with maternity, I think, is you can't always anticipate them. Certainly you can't anticipate a hemorrhage. Uh, that just happens. And as the baby comes out, sometimes you need your wellies on and sometimes it's a few moments later. Um, I always say about women that they are really, really good at compensating. A bit like kids, you tell me, um, which is that they compensate, 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 and then they crash. So do keep an eye on your woman. Is she still looking like she's, you know, completely fit and well, or does she look vaguely compromised? And definitely doing observations post-delivery is your first pointer to starting to see something unfold. Yeah. Okay. And so if we if we do kind of um, have a um, case that does go wrong or there's some complications involved, um, certainly in, in our practices, as I think generally, generally ambulance staff are good at having a plan. And so we've discussed having a kind of resuscitation area um, and that decreases the amount of stuff we have to think about if we do need to act. Um, is there anything else, any kind of other tips you'd have for managing a complication once we've established it is happening, um, you know, in terms of managing our own stress or, or calling to people for help or making the decision to go to hospital? Yeah, don't hang around is the first thing I say. If you have a feeling that this is going awry, it likely is. So if it's a bit of a trickle of a bleed, it might become a bigger bleed. So get help early. We spend our lives saying in the ambulance service, don't we? I'd rather you called me and didn't need me yeah. than delayed and waited. And we certainly know from the inquiries that are done when women pass away that often the, the biggest issue was that we didn't fail. Well, we failed to escalate quickly enough to our senior colleagues so, you know, remember that you've got your HEMS, remember that they've got your four units of O-neg blood, remember your critical care paramedics, remember your OTLs and your PPs, remember all of the senior clinicians that you work with have all been you and they've all been frightened and they've all been junior. Um, you know, I've, I've been to some horrible things um, myself where I felt way out of my depth and that's all of us. 
Nobody is ever going to rock up to any job and feel 100% confident. So nobody should feel embarrassed or ashamed that they're asking for help. It's, it's necessary. So definitely, definitely escalate early. Yeah, I'll just add as well, as, as a critical care paramedic, I would still probably be frightened of a lot of those cases. Um, but I think, yeah. like you say, like a problem shared is a problem halved often, isn't it? And, and having two minds is, is definitely better than one. Um, in terms of managing yeah. the different complications so I know we mention it quite a lot when I speak to various people but like you say um, rather be requested and not needed than the other way around. Quite so I mean I've had senior consultants call me into operating theatres and just sort of whispered in my ear can you just be behind me to make sure that you're there if I need anything and these are senior clinicians but we all have human factors and we all have days where we forget things and it's perfectly fine to say to that senior colleague are you sure you want to do that on the left side and not the right or um, have you remembered so and so so and so you know we, it, we need those prompts because we're not machines we're not robots we can't remember everything and sometimes we get so caught up we don't see what's going on in front of us which is why we're supposed to have in an emergency that person that stands back and oversees everybody and doesn't actually act um, but in a maternity job if there's just two of you you don't have that luxury so just sense check yourself and sometimes you need to go back to the beginning and slow yourself down certainly in neonatal recess because we don't do it very often you know your heart rate's three times that of the person you're trying to resuscitate and you are you know you are feeling really out of your depth and frightened slow your thinking make yourself slow down yeah i think they're really good points and and you know even like breathing techniques and stuff are really beneficial for that i find um yeah i use those in job interviews i hate job yeah. interviews my favorite thing similarly stressful two most stressful things you can go through absolutely <laughs> and exams actually i, I think are probably in there yeah um, yeah absolutely that's up there cool all right thank you for that um i wonder if then we could um talk about um or kind of re reflect on some of your experience because i think it's important that we recognize that unfortunately not all cases go well as we know um but sometimes the the most valuable lessons come from those thing those cases where things could have gone better um so i, w I wonder if you've got any kind of particular experiences or, or cases that you could reflect on and and tell us a bit about when something went wrong and, and what kind of lessons came from that. Yeah, of course. I mean, I'll have loads. Um, and that's how we learn. I remember saying to a manager years ago who was absolutely awesome. And I asked her how she got to be so good. I said, how did you get to be this brilliant? And she laughed her head off. And she said, I've made loads of mistakes on the way. And yeah. so that's really key. That's really important. And I remember as a fairly newly qualified midwife, and I'm still friends with the person I was working with, and she still delivers this story much better than I during dinner parties. So um, we were working on a midwifery-led unit together, and she was the more senior midwife. I was the most junior. And I had delivered this woman's baby or she'd, she'd birthed it I'd assisted her and everything was absolutely fine her partner had gone home and it was the middle of the night and I thought I'll just go and check that everything's okay probably been a couple of hours since delivery and so I crept into the room had a little look at her and um, she looked absolutely fine no problem at all so I just thought it was dark I just thought, uh, oh, I'll just have a quick feel of her uterus because midwives are ever so slightly obsessed with just making sure the uterus is contracted. It's part of our check. So I just said, I just sort of tried to wake her and she didn't wake up. 
and I just said, I'm just going to feel your uterus. So whilst I was simultaneously saying, I'm just, I was putting the sheets back, I'm just going to have a quick feel of your uterus. As I pulled the bedding back, I was confronted with a completely claret bed. She had bled and she wasn't very responsive. She was sort of grunting at me. So I left the room and I found my more senior colleague and I said, oh, she's had a bit of a bleed. Um, and uh, she said, OK, let me come in. And she came in and she I remember her saying to me, can you go and call the registrar straight away? Penny still hadn't really dropped with me. And I said, yeah, of course, no problem. So I meandered out, went to the telephone, rang the registrar. Uh, somebody answered his phone and said he's just in theatre at the moment, finishing off a cesarean section. He'll probably be about 10 minutes. And I said, OK, no problem. Put the phone down, went back into my colleague and said, um, yeah, he's on his way. It'll be about 10 minutes. He's just finishing a cesarean. And I'll never forget how she spun around on her feet. <laughs> she looked at me and she went, now. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right, keep your hair on. Um, so I went back to the phone and said, I'm ever so sorry. Uh, my colleague says she definitely needs you now. And uh, with that, the registrar ran down the corridor because he knew my colleague well and knew that if she said now, that meant now. Um, and that woman had had a catastrophic hemorrhage. And I just hadn't grasped at any point the gravity of the situation. Um, and she was really sick. And so there was my first lesson in um, A, turning the light on when you go to assess a patient, because I would have seen very quickly had I put the light on that she um, she was pretty moribund. You know, she was very pale. She was very um, unresponsive. She was pretty unwell. Um, but I, I didn't do that. And also that her lack of ability to respond to me also told me a million things, didn't it? Um, but I thought she was just asleep, <laughs> having a snooze. But no, she wasn't very responsive for a different reason. So there was one of my my very quick learning um, outcomes, shall we say. It's weird, that, isn't it? Because I, I've had similar experiences in ambulances where you kind of think, oh, we're conveying a patient at two in the morning with the lights off. And it's almost not very English to turn the light on and wake them up to see if, <laughs> see if they're all right. Absolutely, um, and you kind of you don't want to you don't want to do that, and then they're fine, and you look like you don't know your job. I guess it's all very English kind of characteristics. It is, and there's so much evidence out there about ITU patients and how sleep deprived they are when they come out of ITU because they're constantly under bright lights. You know, they yeah. never get. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously most of them are in, induced sleeping, but you know, post post being having an induced sleep and you're 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 no longer being forced to sleep you know when we're in high dependency units and uh, step down units we have the lights on permanently so we can see these patients never a care for the fact that they might actually need good solid six to eight hours sleep and yeah. um, most of us don't sleep with our lights on do we so not to mention the beeping of the machines and the you know the staff bustling in and out these patients are really sleep deprived yeah. And we know what sleep deprivation does. So, yeah, we are very British about things and we need to stop being British and saying, I'm really sorry, but um, you're not having the curtains pulled around you because you're in a high dependency unit for a reason. And I need the curtains back at all times so that I can see you. You know, so many so many of my colleagues on labour wards will let patients have the curtains around them. Well, they're in a high dependency unit for a reason. When you get to a postnatal room on the postnatal ward, by all means, shut your door and pull your curtains around. You're no longer a risk. But whilst you're in a, a, a room where you are deemed to be higher risk, no, you may not have the curtains pulled around you. 
Yeah, and I think there's there's something in the human factors there as well, isn't there, about this kind of diagnostic momentum where the further you go down a um, kind of situation in your head where the patient's okay, the more um, the 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 harder it is to completely change your tack on on what you're doing. So you know, if the if someone's asleep after what seems like a normal delivery, the more you let them sleep, the harder it is to change your mind and suddenly realise they're they're having a kind of emergency that that needs intervention. They're um, unconscious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's it's really hard to kind of pull your mind out of that that thinking pattern and and kind of reevaluate stuff and establish that it is it an is. emergency, isn't it? And I think as we become more experienced, we're we're slightly more abrasive about it. But certainly as a junior clinician, I, I was not. I wanted it all to be lovely and fluffy and normal and uh, delightful. Um, as I've got older, I've become slightly less that way. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it depends on the, the jobs you're involved in. Obviously, once you build up a bank of experiences, when that didn't pay off. Um, Absolutely. And we can always pull on our experiences, can't we? Yeah. And that's what makes us the clinicians we are. That's why we suddenly get that sixth sense. Yeah, I guess. We've been there before. <laughs> we've been there before. In maybe a different guise, but we've probably been there before. Fine. So thank you for that. Um, okay. So I know you wanted to discuss uh, baby loss, and I think it's really important, if very uncomfortable, thing to talk about. Um, although clearly we won't be clinically responsible in choosing to withdraw resuscitation from a newborn, and as such, I guess it's a kind of it's a different conversation for us. Um, Unfortunately, it's not that common that ambulance staff are called to attend miscarriages at various stages of pregnancy. Um, and we know that up to a third of pregnancies result in miscarriage. And the reasons and emotions behind these losses can be obviously really numerous and, and complex. Um, so how, as ambulance staff, do we navigate this really difficult time for mothers and parents? Yeah, uh, it is incredibly difficult. And I don't think you're ever taught how to manage it. Or certainly if you are, it's uh, suggested that you say this or you do that. And it's really quite personal, isn't it? And it's very subjective as well. So it's a very difficult thing to um, to address. However, there are some very definite do's and don'ts. And um, one of my biggest don'ts is um, to address this baby as just that it's a baby so I always say during my training that when a woman does a pregnancy test and she gets that blue line she's pregnant with a baby from that moment she's not pregnant with an embryo or a fetus or products of conception or any of those other things that we are taught and trained to say um, that that's her baby so when she loses it she's gone from being really excited about this new life that's going to come into the world so she's like at the top of the mountain if you like and she's going to come crashing down the minute that you explain to her that her baby has died and I use that term because it's delivered the message and it seems harsh but actually when you're looking after a woman and she is birthing a baby let's give an example of say a 16 week baby I already know that there's nothing I'm going to be able to do but if I've just walked through the front door and she's now about to deliver a 16 week baby I'm not going to necessarily walk in and say okay yeah carry on push away but your baby's going to be dead so that would be really awful and really um unfeeling so I'm going to deliver her as sensitively and kindly as I possibly can and at the point that the baby is born and it would be fully developed at 16 weeks I'm going to very quickly tell her that I'm really sorry but there's nothing we can do and I can't resuscitate your baby it won't survive and I know that sounds blunt 
but women will often tell you that there was this awful period of time when the baby was born where they were so full of hope that we could provide some sort of you know miracle that they were they were left almost so they'll describe staff leaving the room to go and get a more senior colleague or staff just looking awkwardly at them not knowing what to say so women I've spoken to about this have said to me I want the message delivered and I want it delivered you know, in a kind way, but I want it delivered so that it's absolutely conclusive and I know what's been said. So, you know, using things like gone to heaven and passed away, they're not definite enough. They can mean other things. So um, for me, that's a big no in terms of baby loss. Um, get it right, deliver the message correctly and, and, and use, the, use the term baby wherever you possibly can. And then the other thing that we're taught to do as midwives, and it's part of, of grief, I think, um, or bereavement, should I say, is that the mother is encouraged to hold her baby. Now, some people will think that's really, really odd. But if this is a really wanted baby, part of the, the bereavement process is holding that baby in her arms. And sometimes we encourage them to name that child as well. So that it has an identity um, because that, that helps them to, to move forward with it. Yeah, I think that's a really useful um, kind of thing to be aware of because you know I've I've been that clinician when I was a more junior paramedic I've certainly been in that position where I didn't know what to say and I didn't want to take the responsibility of telling someone such a final piece of information that I wanted to go and clarify it with someone else and it's it's really hard and you know in in my role now more so I'm in that position where I have to give that kind of final um, news and it is a really tough thing to do. And if there's ever a, a situation in which being a vulnerable leader is beneficial, I think that is it. Um, and and recognising that, you know, it's, it's not going to be a nice thing for us to have to tell someone. And, no. you know, because we, it's it's a really rare experience for us. So I, I think it's unlikely that as an ambulance clinician, you're going to be confident in giving that news. Um, but if, I guess if we're prepared beforehand and, and we know the guidelines around what is and what is not appropriate for resuscitation, so that 20-week mark we're given in JR Calc, um, yeah. and just having an awareness in your mind that it's it's clear that this is a, um, a kind of unsurvival, a, a miscarriage situation, and that you need to take some of that responsibility for the parents in making the transition into understanding what's happening um, better, and it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable position to be in, but it's, it's one of those times where you really need to kind of um, uh, have the or portray the confidence, um, yes. you know, to, to give that news. And I guess um, you can do it in a vulnerable way. So I don't think I'd be able to do that in an emotionless way. And it might be that you get emotional when giving that news. But like you say, it's just so important to, to do it correctly. But that's fine because that shows that you're human, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that's really important to say is if you don't know what to say, don't say something which minimises their their loss, if you like. Um, so people will say things like, oh, but it's all right because you've got another two children or at least now you know you can have kids. Um, and so that says a couple of things. It says that you don't appreciate the children you've already got, maybe, and it minimises that loss that you've just endured. You know, being grateful doesn't negate pain and grief. So sometimes just saying nothing and being silent is absolutely okay and just looking at somebody yeah I think I think that's another really important point and it's it's you know I, I'm always of the kind of mindset that you you don't know what you don't know so if if um I, I kind of say to patients when I'm giving people this this bad news or, or to families when I'm, I'm breaking bad news is that 
you know, I, I'm a fairly young person in relation to most of the, the patients that we see. And yeah. so I don't have the life experience they do. And I've not, you know, I may have not had the kind of family dynamic that they do. And so I don't know how they feel. And there is nothing I can say. But... And I think that's really important what you've just said to say, I don't know how you're feeling. Because you also get people saying, you know, I know how you feel. Well, no, you don't. You absolutely don't. Because every grief experience is different. And actually, because your dog died last year, doesn't mean you understand grief. Um, so it's really important to say, I don't know how you're feeling right now, or I don't know what to say to you, but I want you to know that I'm here. Yeah. We've had some we've had some sort of stories in the past where women have had maybe term stillbirths, and we're really lucky in hospital because we have bereavement midwives, and certainly the bereavement midwife I used to work with, who's absolutely exemplary, um, she tells some amazing stories where women have contacted her weeks later to say they're going back to work and they don't know how they're going to get on the train and get into London and what are they going to say to those colleagues that maybe the message hasn't been delivered to um, when they when they have that first meeting and she was remarkable this bereavement midwife she used to go to work with them on their first day and do the train journey with them and she's also walked into playgrounds where maybe a woman's been you know heavily pregnant in front of all the other school mums and they've got a four or five year old in reception and so all those mums have watched that pregnancy grow and then she now has to go and do again what they class as the walk of shame she's got to walk into that playground and her baby's dead and all those mums are going to come up and say oh my wow you know you're not pregnant anymore how you know where's the baby how how was it are you okay so our our bereavement midwife used to do that with them she used to go with them to do the first school run because she just understood the enormity of what it was for those poor women and how can you imagine how horrendous that would be you just can't yeah and i think that's the thing isn't it if, if we're struggling to find the right things to say um you know non-clinical people in the playground it's just going to be a whole another level of yeah of kind of and emotional roller coaster how many times do you hear women saying, well, they just completely ignored me. The people I thought were my best friends never made contact. And you spend your life saying, yeah, but that's not because they don't care. It's because they did not know what to say to you. And they felt guilty because they just had a baby or they had three healthy children. And you hear that time and time again. I remember working with a doctor who had a baby and I looked after her. And unfortunately, he had a condition which was undiagnosed. It was a syndrome which became very apparent when he was born. And I'll never forget, I went to see her three days after and she was really upset. And obviously I was expecting her to be in a state of flux because of, of what had happened. But she, what, would, what had actually upset her the most was that nobody had sent her a congratulations card. And she said, why has nobody said congratulations? He's still my baby. I've still had a baby. And I just yeah. remember saying to her, you know, it's not that they don't care. They don't know whether they should. They're, they're, they're in a state of, I don't know what the right thing to do is. Should I send her a card? And she said, well, of course they should have sent me a card because I've still had a baby and he's, he's he's still my little boy. And, it you know, it really made me think, actually. I can understand both sides. Yeah, I, th I think that's the thing, isn't it? And, and I think people are so worried about what to say. You know, often rightly so. You don't, you don't want to upset people and say the wrong thing. But I think that's the bottom line, isn't it? Just... Um sometimes knowing when it's it's okay not to know what someone's going through and you know you don't have to provide all the answers as long as you are there like you say to to answer questions and and be there for someone if, if they need you to be and just acknowledge it because if you acknowledge someone's grief you're telling them that um well by not by not acknowledging their grief you're telling them that their grief doesn't matter or yeah. their suffering doesn't matter and it does 
Yeah, cool. All right, thank you for that. I, there's, I guess, the other aspect to that to those situations is um, that what we do in terms of of like the clinical side of things. So early early miscarriages. I know it, the guidance, the, the kind of clear clinical guidance guidance is that an early miscarriage that results in some some heavy bleeding um, is not necessarily uh, an indication for treatment in A and E. Um, and they might be appropriate for referral to to a, a pathway out of hospital or, or outside of A and E. Yeah. Um, but it's I think it's it's hard to again kind of navigate that that complexity. Um, so what 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 do we do for these patients? You know, it, kind of um, emotions and things aside, um, what what clinical support do we uh, um, offer these patients in terms of referral or or signposting to different services? Okay, so historically, my my view is always that these things happen at night when you can't um, navigate those. Always, exactly. You can't navigate or signpost to those services because most hospitals have an early pregnancy clinic. Um, and if you are miscarrying or um, having a termination, you can still go to an early pregnancy clinic and they will still see and advise you. But they tend to run nine to five, Monday to Friday, which isn't ever so helpful to us. Yeah. So um, so certainly in, in hours, in work hours, you can signpost a woman to there. Um, you can always signpost them to their GP, obviously, as you know. But I always have niggling in the back of my mind. And this is this isn't all of our population, but it would be quite a big deal for me to dial 999. And so why is she called an ambulance? What's going on there? Um, why why hasn't she, you know, got in her car and gone to the doctor or driven herself to ED? And sometimes, you know, uh, patients aren't very helpful and they call ambulances like taxi service. I know that. Um, but I think I would want to understand better why she'd called an ambulance. And, and you know, and we spend our lives asking, don't we? What, what is it that made you call an ambulance today? What Why is it? So I think it's fine to leave these women at home once you've done those checks and balances, as it were. Yeah, no, I guess that makes sense. And I think like you're kind of alluding to is, is what are people's expectations? And it seems like a very management type thing to to say, but I think it's important to, if you can establish what people's expectations are, because like you say, it might be that they called 111. And and so often the reason for the call um, is accidental that it got referred to us in, in what, for want of a better phrase. But, but like you say, sometimes it's because of panic or um, some sort of emotional thing, which, which would require some kind of ongoing support. I think we're quite good, aren't we, at picking up on the emotional safeguarding element, but that's always ringing in my head a little bit, you know, is there something else going on here that maybe isn't obvious right now? Um, but safeguarding is always a bit of a red flag, isn't it? Yeah. But I think the other thing to say is that most of the, um, if a woman has opted to have a termination of pregnancy, I know that BPAS do offer counselling. And also if a woman's had a pregnancy loss, there are so many charities out there. So there's SANS, which is the one that most people will be aware of. Um, and they are brilliant. And certainly if a woman comes into hospital, she'll be given information and leaflets so that she can ring them day or I think it's 24-7 their service um, to get advice or support. But there are plenty of charities if somebody Googled it to get to get help. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one because you don't want to sit there Googling stuff and look like you don't know what you're doing. Um, yeah, of course. And and the the problem is sometimes we're kind of um, spoiled by choice, and there's so many different support kind of you know if you if you do a quick Google for these services, there's so many different options. You don't know which one is the appropriate one. Um, so let me tell you the two that you should use then. That'd be <laughs> so there's, there's Stands and there's the Mariposa Trust. Okay. Um, 
There are other lovely ones. So we've just had um, a very sad outcome in the community um, with a 16 year old girl and she doesn't have any parental support. She's very young, 16. And there's a lovely charity called Aching Arms. And essentially what happens is a woman loses her baby and they they sponsor a teddy bear and they're beautiful bears and they name it. And sometimes they name it after their, their baby that's died. And then when the next woman loses her baby, that bear gets sent on. So everybody gets a new bear uh, and it gets sent on to that woman with a little note from the couple that have also lost their baby just to sort of a make them aware that they're not alone and that this happened to somebody else a few weeks ago and they've named this bear and then they get the opportunity to do the same for the next woman and there's so many lovely things out there um, that are available to women memory boxes you know handprints photos all of those things and most of them are free um, so that tends to happen in hospital certainly in the pre-hospital environment we don't have to get involved in that um, and if a woman comes in with a term stillbirth, certainly if she goes to maternity, uh, the bereavement midwife will visit her and she will signpost her to all of those fantastic charities. But it's difficult to navigate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's useful to have those um, those recommended ones that, that you mentioned. So I can put a link to those um, for people. Um, but yeah, I think that's the point for us is we want to, you know, we kind of recognise that as ambulance staff, we're kind of fleetingly in people's lives. Um, but you want to leave some sort of impact, some sort of meaningful impact in, in terms of referrals and, and signposting rather than, you know, leaving people to answer questions for themselves if, if you can avoid it. They're also there to support healthcare professionals, Silas. It might be quite an idea to mention that. Um, certainly SANS, I don't know about Mariposa, but SANS um, does quite a lot of work with supporting uh, healthcare professionals as, as well. But I guess you will leave a footprint if you've been compassionate and certainly we're bringing in cuddle pockets to the ambulance service soon, which are tiny little knitted pockets, which for late pregnancy loss, rather than just giving them the, the tiny little baby to the mum in one of our giant towels, well, the baby looks giant in one of those towels, you just simply pop it in one of these pockets and you give it to mum to hold. And it's a very simple thing to do, but it delivers the message that you care and you acknowledge their grief. And I think that's really important and really powerful. Yeah, I think that's the bottom line, isn't it? Cool. All right. Thank you for that. That um, answers a lot of questions, I think. Um, good. So obviously we've, we've discussed some stuff that's got um, a bit more depressing than, than the positives of, of um, most deliveries. Um, yeah. And on, on that note, I, I wanted to end on a high, I guess, um, because as we keep mentioning, most of these jobs go well. Um, and so, again, if we could address your wealth of experience... I wonder if you could tell us about a job um, that you've been involved in that actually was a positive and, and what kind of lessons came from that just to balance out your negative experience of before. Yeah, of course. I mean, every, every delivery is positive, isn't it? And I still get really excited at a birth. Um, I think I'm quite unique in that way. Um, but I, I think the, the ones that stick out for me are the women that perhaps have had a previous bad outcome and then they come back to have that wonderful delivery and that's never going to replace that child that perhaps they lost but to see a woman come back and for you to try and make it such a wonderfully positive experience I've got a woman in my head right now who had the most devastating loss and when she emailed me to tell me she was pregnant again I was really keen to stay out of that 
experience the next time and I I remember saying to her I'll I'll you know forward your details to my colleague and I will get her to take over your care and she was adamant absolutely adamant that she wanted to see me again and for me to be part of it and I didn't really know whether that was right or not but I went with it because she was quite explicit that she wanted me to be part of this new experience and it was the most emotional delivery ever because um, obviously the previous one had been so harrowing and this one was just such a positive experience and it was just I can still remember it now and looking after her when she had that that next baby and it's just so lovely and it's such an honour I spend my life saying to our colleagues in green we are so honoured to be there at this very intimate time and this really special time and we must never lose sight of that. Yeah I think that's the thing isn't it and because like you say I've, I've been to a few of these these jobs in the past and one or two that didn't go particularly well but the ma- majority of the ones I've attended that have and you can't it's, it's nice when you get to hospital for us it's nice when you hand them over to a midwife actually um, but it's nice when you get to hospital and you realise there's nothing more to be worried about and you can um, I guess just be involved in the happiness of, of what's just happened. Um, absolutely and it is it's an amazing thing isn't it a woman has just ejected another human from her body I still can't (laughs) after all this time I still find it completely unfathomable Um, it's just immense isn't it to think that a uterus is just a big lump of muscle and it manages to eject another human it's just brilliant and I think that's the thing isn't it they're the the cases that you always hear about positively in the crew room Um, like us ambulance staff like a like a moan but um, almost unanimously when you attend a case like this it's always spoken about quite positively so yeah it's lovely and if they name the baby after you well there we go yeah I'm still, really are... I'm still waiting for that case but yeah you and me both <laughs> <laughs> who would want to call their child Dawn I mean it's the most god awful name so I get it <laughs> yeah well no one's called their child Silas either so um, I don't know what that says about my name maybe we're both awful <laughs> fine all right thanks for that um yeah it's great it's, it's, it's good to end on a high isn't it um absolutely yeah i appreciate it's that positive. um it's yeah so i think it's been really useful to talk over some of that stuff um i think there's a lot more we could discuss and um certainly i think it's worth people going over i mean even if it is fresh in your mind um going over the kind of again the kind of common emergencies that are spoken about is useful to do isn't it and so i'll link people to that um but yeah, is there, is there anything else you'd like to add just before we come to a close um, that you think we've missed and would be useful for people to be aware of? Well, my one thing, Silas, which you all have heard me say before, um, my one thing that I always, always want to say, and I even if I do a three-hour training session, I say, if you remember nothing, remember this. And that is that your baby can't keep itself warm. So that baby, when it comes out, requires you to do everything for it. And one of the th- one of the things that it needs is for you to keep it warm. So as I've said already, mum is a, a nice radiator. So if the baby's well, you're going to put baby on that mum and you're going to cover them both up. But if you don't put a hat on your baby and you don't dry them and get rid of the wet towel and you leave them exposed to the cold air on the floor, they will start to become hypothermic very fast. And if you think that the mortality increases by 28% for every degree below 36.5, that their temperature drops, that will bring you very quickly down to earth with a bump and hopefully help you to realise the importance of keeping that baby warm. So that will be my ending uh, message, if that's okay. Um, If you'd remember nothing else, warm baby, warm baby, warm baby. 
that's a very good point and it's a st- scary statistic isn't it um but yeah like you say right. certainly something we can do a lot about um and yeah I, I think it takes a bit of practice putting those little hats on um <laughs> Well, we're about to get two different sizes. I've spoiled you all. Oh, perfect. Um, do you, that hat does fit. You just have to stretch it. But everybody moans that it doesn't fit. So we're having two, small and a large. <laughs> it, it's, I don't think it's that it doesn't fit. It just makes you look less professional when you're struggling to put a hat on. It's <laughs> <laughs> normal. Seems like something we should be able to do quite easily. Cool. All right. Thank you for that. Um, really appreciate no you taking the time out of your busy days to speak to me. Um, no problem. Good to speak to you anytime. Thank you much. Cheers hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.